Hello, and welcome to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I'm interview editor Lauren Whitaker, and I'm here today with fellow interview editor Lucy Schmitz, and we are about to sit down with GU Politics fellow Suzanne Kianpour. Suzanne Kianpour is a foreign affairs and political journalist for the BBC. An Emmy-nominated news reporter and producer, she's currently covering foreign policy and national security issues, leading the Washington side of the BBC's investigation into Russia's role in U.S. politics, foreign influence, and the special counsel's probe. With previous postings in Beirut, London, and Los Angeles, her reporting has taken her around the world, from various conflict zones in the Middle East to Europe traveling with then-Secretary of State John Kerry in a front-row seat to the Iran nuclear negotiations, to Latin America and the U.S. detente with Cuba. In 2016, she crisscrossed America, covering presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, and ultimately returned to Washington, the Trump White House, and the corridors of Capitol Hill. Thank you for joining us on the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. Um, we're so excited to talk to you a little bit about um, your work, your experience here at Georgetown, and a little bit reflecting on our theme for the Georgetown Public Policy Review this year, which is rethinking governance. And you know, coming from a journalistic space, you might have some interesting ideas because I know that you have uh, been able to report from many parts of the world and on many types of governments. And um, given your experience observing the machinations of different political processes around the world, what are some of the ways you think America should learn from other nations or we think the way that we govern ourselves? Well, uh, the U.S. is obviously one of the younger Western countries, but it's also uh, the democracy that we have here and the political process that we have here is something that is a point of wonder, frankly, in so many of the other countries that I've traveled to. It's 52 at this point. But I will say that, especially in countries that are younger than the U.S., for example, um, the level of engagement in their political process, the excitement, the energy, and you know, in a lot of places that's driven from not having had certain political freedoms and then, you know, recently gained them. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that drive and that energy can come from that. But in terms of what the U.S. can learn from other countries, I would say one is one is that that sort of excitement and that energy and that drive and that sense of civic duty and that desire to be involved mm -hmm. in the political process, in public service, in government, um, which obviously 2016, we don't really need to go over that <laughs> and talk about how much of a surprise that may or may not have been to much of the country and the world. But in the 2018 midterms, we've seen record number of turnouts and, and different kinds of candidates running. And so as somebody who's traveled the world, to see that kind of energy that we saw in the mm -hmm. midterms, which, you know, the midterms aren't usually um, as high profile or as maybe even exciting um, as presidential 
the presidential years, mm-hmm. the presidential uh, seasons, uh, election seasons. Um, so if you watch cable news <laughs> or you get alerts on your phone from other news outlets, you might not feel a sense of hope because oftentimes the headlines are or can be so full of, you know, not exactly positive headlines, maybe some sarcasm, mm-hmm. depending on the outlet. Um, and, but I would say that we should look at, and you know what, I'm totally going to be called a hippie for this. I've been called a hippie (laughs) for saying things that are overly optimistic on the radio before, but you know what, wear it with pride. I would say we should look at the midterms, 2018 midterm elections with a sense of optimism and hope. And I actually, a friend of mine, Rena Shaw, she's often on the cable channels talking about politics and and you know, kind of being a pundit, so to speak. She on election on midterm election day had an interesting idea and, and perspective where she basically said, Our country is so divided right now that perhaps it's going to take a divided government, a divided Congress specifically, mm-hmm. um, to unite it. And, you know, I guess we'll see. In January, yeah. if it forces it forces people to actually work together, then mm-hmm. I'd say that's a positive. Absolutely, you've covered so many politicians and governments as we were talking about. Um, when you think about types of governments or individual politicians, what stands out to you, or what types of characteristics stand out to you? as making governments or politicians particularly effective about communicating about policy? So what's interesting, since this kind of leads back to your first question a bit, the difference between, or one of the differences that I've noticed between U.S. politics and politics abroad is um, is just how much American voters vote with their gut. You know, the idea that, oh, I want to have a beer with that person is something that I don't want to make a blanket statement and say it's it's totally unique to the United States, but it's not as much of a factor in places like the UK, for example. There's maybe more of a focus on personality mm-hmm. here. <laughs> yeah, personality, charisma. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, think of the advent of television and how much of a difference that made. But I remember... Uh, in New Hampshire, February of 2016, I went to, um, before the primaries, I went to one of Donald Trump's town halls at a small church, um, and there were probably about between 150 to maybe 200 people, and he was sat on a stool in the center of the town hall, or in the center of the church, and everything had been kind of cleared out, center of the old church, Um, And people were kind of, you know, sitting around, Um, but he, you know, he had the floor and then, you know, the press was like crammed in the corner as we usually are. And I was very surprised that he, at the way he was able to connect to these people who were largely blue collar from New Hampshire, living in New Hampshire. Gosh, it was so cold too. (laughs) Freezing my frostbite on my fingers, literally. Um, And one of the major topics of discussion and questions was the opioid crisis. So we know that the opioid uh, abuse and deaths from opioid overdose is a big issue in New Hampshire. But, you know, as he sat there on this stool, you kind of 
You forgot that he was a Manhattan billionaire <laughs> or millionaire. This wealthy New Yorker, you forgot that that's who he was. So the politicians that have been able to connect to uh, average Americans who on the trail who are different than them are the ones who have always been, I think, the most interesting to cover. You know, Hillary Clinton, as candidate, struggled with that, but not as Secretary of State. She was really good at connecting with people um, when she was traveling as Secretary of State. So it, it was it was always something that that really kind of puzzled me. Um, but you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's a whole other that's a whole right. other discussion. <laughs> yeah. Well, not in 2016, but I do have a little follow-up question for you. What are some of the ways that you've seen covering Donald Trump change the culture of political media over the last couple of years? Oh, man, where to begin? (laughs) That was pretty much the reason why I centered my discussions this semester on what is media's responsibility and role in public service. And um, part of that was largely just watching the evolution of how we were covering the White House and Trump. I mean, look, okay, number one. Uh, So that was new. (laughs) Um, And we had to, you know, at least I can really only BC's perspective rather. Early on, there was you know, discussions about how we cover his tweets. And the decision was basically made that, you know, we're not going to cover every single one of his tweets, right? right. So the, that, I mean, that was unprecedented in and of itself. And then, you know, there's obviously, um, there's there seems to be, a lot more focus and attention on real-time fact-checking, which is great, mm-hmm. as we should be doing that all the time mm-hmm. for everybody. You know, it's difficult for me to say whether or not that same level of fact-checking happens with other politicians, because you know that would mean I would have to pay attention to all of that coverage at all times. But, you know, the, the kind of fact-checking that's, that real-time fact-checking that's going on with Donald Trump is great. And I hope and expect, and it's the media's responsibility to continue that regardless of who is president. Um, you know, like, it was, I believe it was just yesterday that one of the CBS correspondents outside of the White House as Trump was leaving, real-time fact-checked the president about tweets that he made um, or put out about the 60 Minutes story on the caravans and migration. Mm-hmm. And, but there's also, you know, I think in terms of what may have evolved and changed and perhaps not for the better is the tone. Um, I think media's responsibility is to maintain an even tone. And one of the issues with cable news and the kind of rise of partisan journalism, not necessarily rise, I mean, if I say rise of partisan journalism, that means that partisan journalism is a new thing. It's not at all. It's as old as America, frankly. Um, 
But the pressures of cable news coupled with partisan journalism uh, has made this sensationalism. It's basically seemingly solidifying it. And that is a difficult sort of line to walk Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to maintaining the tone that it is our responsibility to maintain. I mean, but also look, look, it's human nature, right? If you're, if you're attacked, you know, you're you're taught in school not to Mm -hmm. give in to the quote unquote bullies, for example, I'm not calling Donald Trump a bully. I'm just giving an example. Mm -hmm. Um, But just, but it's, it, there's only so much that human nature can kind of, I would assume, tolerate um, before they start going on the offensive themselves. So, um, you know, but today we saw that there was a White House press briefing for the first time since October 29th, <laughs> and Jim Acosta was there, and all was good in the world. <laughs> so peace <laughs> be upon us. It is the season. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Um, there's obviously a lot of talk about covering Trump and the ethics of covering Trump and how to cover Trump, but I'm interested also in how you think Trump's sort of uniqueness in the political landscape has changed covering other politicians, say on Capitol Hill, and the attention that non-presidential leaders get. How do you think that covering other politicians has changed in the Trump era? I don't really know that it has necessarily. I don't really know that it has because I think that Trump's style is so unique to Trump, mm-hmm. you know, and and therefore how the reporter reacts or doesn't react. I, I think I think these are sort of isolated events. Um, I don't. I mean, like I said, um, th- everything pretty much comes back to Trump now. So in essence, I suppose like what may have changed in terms of how we cover, you know, the State Department or the Hill, for example, is, okay, you might go in and you're covering a story, any story, um, because Trump is the story, automatically in the back of your head, you're going to be thinking from a Trump perspective or a Trump angle, so Mm -hmm. to speak, right? Mm -hmm. right? So... And look, politicians are aware of that. They're aware of that because they're here to govern or they're here to legislate, so to speak. And they know, you know, oftentimes they need press in order to get the message out that they have, that they want to put out um, or, you know, to get back to their constituents. And so whether you're a Democrat and you hate Trump Mm -hmm. or you're a Republican and you secretly don't really fancy him but (laughs) on the surface you have to kind of you know um chug along you're always thinking about that i mean i'm sure trump's on i think trump's in this space trump's on our minds pretty much at all times (laughs) (laughs) i you led the bbc's investigation into russia's role in uh, u.s politics the u.s side from the US side. Mm-hmm. This was such a like fast moving story. I know I had trouble like being actors straight and, mm-hmm. and um and keeping the story straight in my mind. Can you a little bit about what it was like to cover um this fast moving story? Well, 
So um, my colleague, Paul Wood, who I worked with in Iraq and in uh, Lebanon, was, I mean, he's, he's one of the best journalists I've ever met. Um, and he first was told about possible compromise, possible, you know, alleged Kremlin money going into the Trump campaign. All of, he heard of, he first heard of all of these allegations um, in March of 2016 and just carried on sort of, he has said himself, it sounded ridiculous, we didn't do anything with it. And then, but you know, as as the year went on and, um, you know, things evolved and it looked like Trump was, you know, might actually have a shot uh, to dig in, dig in. Um, so I, I first was brought onto the story um, because of the Hill angles, because of the congressional angles, um, because we'd heard of letters, uh, a, a concern from people like Harry Reid, who was uh, uh, the Democrat leader at the time. And so we, uh, but it was also very, so I was brought on, I first basically was brought on to this in uh, a couple of weeks before election day. And I was traveling with Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously we were a little busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, you know, we were, we were kind of digging around and trying to confirm things and, and whatnot. Um, and, you know, we had the dossier, we had the steel dossier. Um, other people had it too, as we know. We had information about Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrants that had been um, filed. And um, so once BuzzFeed, I'm so going down a rabbit hole here. That's okay. <laughs> but that's the nature of this story. Um, once BuzzFeed published the dossier in full, everyone else basically pulled the trigger in terms of the reporting that they had, including us, including the FISA stuff, which then Comey, as FBI director, basically all but publicly confirmed in a hearing in the House, which that public televised hearing in and of itself was just you know, completely, I don't want to say unprecedented exactly, because I don't exactly know if it was totally unprecedented, but it was just, it was something not to be lost on us in terms of significance, right? And uh, so, I mean, it's been, so I've been, you know, I've been digging into this, the Russian influence operations for two years now. And um, I would say, well, it's obviously not over. Mueller's report hasn't come out yet. Um, I mean, I can't really go into details, but I've been working on one angle of the story, um, which we keep thinking we're close to confirming and then we like get stuck. A lot of investigative journalism is like stop and go traffic and it really teaches you a lesson in patience because you also have to make sure you are rock solid on your information. But it's something like this, you know, the whole the whole premise of of kind of Russian intelligence tactics is mind games, for lack of a better word, in terms of how they manipulate information and how they use information. Um, because, you know, they didn't, they didn't historically, they haven't really had the economic prowess that the United States had, for example. And so, you know, if you, if you're lacking in one thing, 
then you hone in on and so in a nutshell (laughs) (laughs) um covering the russia investigation has been like like digging down a rabbit hole (laughs) and getting to a point where you know you need to accept that there is no bottom (laughs) um so we're all just kind of anxiously awaiting um the special counsel's report and in the meantime, trying to firm up reporting that we have and confirm reporting that we have and making sure that we're 100% correct. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that you were coming at reporting about Russia and the Russian investigation from an American angle, but I, you've also reported from around the world. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you were able to sort of cultivate sources, create and maintain relationships in places, you or your colleagues are able to cultivate relationships and sources in places that might not be as friendly to reporting and to dissent like Russia and Ukraine or other places that you may have reported. Yeah. Um, Well, I will say that it's actually, I've found that it's actually easier than you would think to cultivate sources abroad as a foreign journalist Mm. because there's kind of, um, I feel like there's this human nature element to it in that you, um, in sort of wanting to make sure that foreigner understands your side of it, right? Like your side of your country, for Mm -hmm. example. So the challenge though in that is not getting spun, frankly, because if you, obviously, you're going to, as an American covering America, you're going to have far greater background in in what you're covering, right? And so you'll be able to, I would hope, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Be able to see through the spin with somebody that you're, you, you both have the same first language, you're born and raised and grew up in the same country, maybe not different, er- maybe not same areas, yeah, but you know what I mean? You have, you have points of connection. Um, so, so that's the number one concern when I'm speaking to foreign sources and especially in foreign countries, for example, you know, making sure you're not being used Right. You don't um, want to be a um, mouthpiece for the government exactly. or for any But I mean, party. Yeah, you have that same issue here, you know? I mean, that that's something that, that's as a journalist, you are thinking about that at all times. Right. Um, but it's just, it can be if you don't have as much of a background um, in a country that you're going to, it's something that is always in the back of your mind, you know? But, you know, I think also there are a few things that have played to my advantage in this situation. And um, uh, one is my, like, my cultural background, which people find interesting. And so we're able to, I don't know, you end up, it's kind of like a conversation starter. It's an icebreaker. But also the BBC, you know, the breadth of the BBC and, like, the how far and wide it goes. And it seems like so many people I meet, no matter where in the world, they have some sort of story about their connection to the BBC, like where they were when they were listening to, you know, the the radio reports, especially in war-torn countries or countries that have experienced a lot of conflict. Um, so I was pleasantly, because I, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I was definitely intimidated when I was a cub reporter going into covering foreign 
affairs, thinking, how do you get sources? I actually, I asked, Savannah Guthrie was one of my mentors at NBC when I started at NBC. And I remember I went into her office one day and I said, how do you get sources? You know, how do you get people to tell you things before other people or tell you things and not tell other people things? You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah. No one really tells you that right? Because it's also sort of revealing your tradecraft. But, um, and she said something that was really interesting. She said, it's not like I just talk to them for information. It's not like they're just my sources. There's also, you know, there's also element, an element of like friendship or camaraderie Mm -hmm. in the sense that you ask about their families or you keep in touch about sports or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, just like we don't want to feel used. They don't want to feel used. Right. No, that, that, that makes sense. All right. So um, kind of switching gears a little bit here. Um, each year we kind of talked about how polarization and the quality of debate is kind of changing. Um, so for the young people entering the journalism world today, how would you describe to them what that reporting world is going to look like for them as compared to when you got your start? It's funny you ask because actually in my last office hours, a student came in and was talking about how they were um, kind of concerned about the sacrifices and and asking about what the best route is, for example. And as I was speaking to her, I didn't even really realize this, frankly, but as I was speaking to her, I realized just how much the landscape has changed in the last 10 years. Because I, my first internship was in 2008, summer of 2008. And, you know, then it was like people, mentors and, and, you know, industry giants, so to speak, that I would seek advice from would say, oh, well, you know, if you want to be on air, then you need to go to a local market and like work your way up. Mm-hmm. Um, to which I, you know, thought I don't really care as much about being on air as much as I care about the stories that I'm covering. And I did an internship at a local station and I decided that's local news was definitely not for me um it is for some people it's definitely what definitely wasn't for me i loved i loved foreign policy mm-hmm. and like i didn't even major in journalism i majored in international affairs and like a focus on conflict and security in the middle east and so i was like okay this is i i know that this is what i'm passionate about so what form that takes i knew i wanted to do i know i wanted to work in television because television uh, i feel like television and imagery especially is so powerful is such a powerful medium in terms of you know reporting driving policy right mm-hmm. um, and later in my career um, that ended up coming into fr- to, into fruition when I was in Iraq covering the Mount Sinjar massacre and then you know we were broadcasting stories on all outlets from the ground in Iraq and and then a couple years later I so since I'd moved back I was just having a conversation with a U.S. official who happened to be in the Situation Room with Obama, President Obama at the time, when he was weighing whether or not to order airstrikes, and he was watching our our output. So, but back to your question in terms of the sort of changes and evolutions in the in the landscape, the media landscape. BuzzFeed didn't exist when I started. You know, there's so many outlets now and you guys get your news and information from so many different avenues. I mean, I am a journalist. I guess I'm like kind of on the 
I guess, older end of the spectrum now when it comes to journalists, because, like, now there's all these, like, young, bright-eyed, like, super talented whiz-bang kids. Um, and I found out about the death of the SpongeBob Square creator. I found that out via Instagram. And, mm-hmm. and I am a journalist, yeah. you know? Like, that's where I saw it first. So Instagram didn't exist. Twitter was in its early stages. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is just, I mean, the world is your oyster, which is yeah. good and bad right. <laughs> when it comes to how to put information out. Right. Right. And how to, and, but because of that, I think the traditional tradecraft of journalism has never been more important. And so, you know, like places like the BBC, I mean, I had a conversation with one of our editors over the summer when I was working out of our headquarters in London about, you know, the kind of how to get younger viewers, viewers, for example, and like what direction Mm -hmm. the news industry is going. And I basically was like, well, in terms of platform, everything's going online, not just online on your phone. And in terms of content, I think that we as the BBC should continue doing what we're doing in terms of sticking to our hard-nosed, fact-based, traditional, you know, roll your sleeves up, get your elbows dirty, mm-hmm. like be on the ground, really get under the skin of a story mm-hmm. and like tell it from all sides. Right. So even as the uh, maybe method of communication changes, the essential role of journalists and the essential tools of journalism haven't changed or aren't changing as much. Exactly. I mean, it's sort of like, I guess, dating and mating, right? (laughs) How you meet people has evolved, but the underlying goal is still (laughs) a tale as old as time. (laughs) Speaking of, this is a little bit of a uh, change in topic, but you're a fellow here with Geopolitics, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you've been covering in your uh, talks and or some sort of conversation that you've had that particularly uh, was interesting uh, to you with students. Gosh, it's so hard to choose because Mm -hmm. we had so many great discussions. Um, I would say that the greatest takeaway I've had from my students, two things. One is so many of them don't feel like they are reflected in the particularly the television news that they consume, um, which obviously doesn't happen as much as our older generation. But so, um, you know, they they want to see more people like them. So to me that that, you know, they want to see more women, for example, because like one of the complaints in one of our discussions was the day after midterms and it was they felt like they were everywhere they went like CNN was on um but it was the way that it was it was just like you know three older white guys kind of pointing to graphs and they wanted sort of more meat so to speak and so that was one and the other thing was how they felt like the sense of humanity has kind of been lost in the news. Um, and one of uh, this came up during a discussion about, um, at that time, it was when the Jim Acosta, CNN, Trump, White House row thing was going on. 
but uh, at the same time was at the height of the California uh, wildfire crisis. You know, those a quarter of a million, million um, people were displaced. And, you know, at that point, the day of that, that conversation was still, the death toll was still under 50. Um, but, like, that's no small right. number of people affected. And, you know, my, but the students were saying they felt like they didn't even really know what was happening with the wildfires because the push alerts that they were getting on their phones were all about politics and more specifically the drama between the White House and the press. And so they were really kind of disgruntled with the fact that the press seemed to be more concerned about covering itself than covering the wildfires and the people affected, um, which really resonated with me. Yeah, and I think so often when I think of news, what I mean is political news and and uh, definitely national stories and international stories get short shrift, um, I think, at least in cable news, uh, that, that um, resonates with me as well. Yeah. All right. Um, just as a final wrap-up question, we're asking, we're trying to ask our guests on the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast this semester. Do you have any reading recommendations, articles, books, whatever, uh, if people are interested in learning more or reading more about the topics we've discussed today, what would you recommend they read? (laughs) So I think um, Russian Roulette by Mike Isakoff and David Korn is probably, uh, I think, the most concise primer of what the whole Trump-Russia thing is about. Um, House of Putin, House of Trump is uh, really good on the kind of Russian mob element of the story um, and, and has more history, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, actually, I interviewed um, Craig Unger, who wrote House of Putin, House of uh, Trump, and he's... I mean, he's like very knowledgeable about all of this. He also wrote House of Bush, House of Saud, which, you know what, that would be good to read too, given, uh, you know, the news (laughs) and ongoing debate about uh, U.S.-Saudi relations in light of the Jamal Khashoggi killing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for um, talking to us, and I hope we'll be able to talk again sometime soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you so much for listening to our interview with Suzanne Kianpour. Keep an eye out for upcoming episodes of the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. To make sure you don't miss our next episode, make sure to subscribe. And if you enjoyed this one, please leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thank you.